that he spoke more about right effort than any other topic. Right effort is one of the eight-fold path factors. It's one of the ten paramis, one of the seven factors of enlightenment, one of the five powers, one of the five faculties, one of the four means of accomplishment, and all four of the four right efforts. So it has a distinguished pedigree there. Now we might ask, why did the Buddha speak about right effort so much? What's the, what's the cause of, of doing that? And, and two reasons come to my mind. And one is that this journey we're on to awaken to all of life, the way things are, the truth, however you conceive of it, it's a pretty magnificent thing. This is not, this is the high bar. If you're going to do anything in life, this is the highest bar. And there are just innumerable, there are just infinite places that we can get hung up. And we can get caught, we can, get, we can stumble, we can be dispirited, we can forget what we're doing. And so too during the time of the Buddha, there were all these men and women, monks and nuns, who were practicing meeting and facing and dealing with all the challenges that we're dealing with. And the Buddha taught for 45 years and taught a lot of people. And no doubt they were meeting a lot of challenges. And so there's lots of opportunity to speak about what in this situation would be right effort. And the second reason I can think of the need to, for the Buddha to speak so much about right effort is the understanding that nothing in life, whether in our secular life, in our career, in our education, in our, let alone our spiritual life, nothing is accomplished without effort, without some continuity of effort, some persistence, some perseverance. Occasionally, you know, accidents happen and something happens. But that's nothing you can rely on. And so whatever we accomplish in life requires our continued, active, intentional participation effort. What I've noticed over the few years I've been practicing and observing my own practice and those of others around me and, and students is, is three things. One, everybody at times struggles to find the balance that's called right effort. It just, it's, it's unavoidable. There are times we just struggle. But in that struggle, we, we often go to extremes. We, we try too hard. We don't try hard enough. And it's those extremes of our effort that make the most colorful stories in Dharma practice. 
And the third kind of conclusion of what I've observed is that there's no consensus on what right effort is. So, here we go. Ajahn Chah, a Thai forest master of the last century, he said this, and it's, it's very, uh, it's, it's indicative of what we hear a lot. I know the path very well. Sometimes I see somebody going down the road or down the path, and they're about to fall in the ditch on the left, and I say, go right, go right. At another time, I'll see somebody going down the path, and they're about to wander off in the ditch on the right, and I say, go left, go left. And for those of us who are hearing that, we think, well, that's contradictory. Go left, go left, go right, go right. How are we supposed to know? But in each instance, it was the right instruction. And I'm sure you've all heard. I mean, somebody pointed out that one of my answers to the question this morning contained opposite suggestions. And I said, well... You know, there's 50% of you in the room that needed to hear that, and the other 50% needed to hear its opposite. It doesn't really help you know which one is right. You have to really know for yourself where you're coming from and what. And from your own experience, eventually we learn how to, how, how to make the right effort. The Bodhisattva, Prince Siddhartha, Born 2,500 years ago, he lived in his father's palaces for 29 years, enjoying the princely life, indulging in all of the delights and all of the pleasures available to a prince at that time. Due to some compelling karmic need, he eventually left the palace, went and undertook six years of very ascetic, austere, extreme uh, deprivation, uh, in practicing out in the open, eating very little, wearing very little, avoiding as many people as he could, and just, just trying to beat his body into submission to the mind. And then he realized, after 29 years of indulgence and six years of denial, that neither one of them was, that's not the path. And he found the, the middle way. And the middle way, or the middle path, is a way of being in the world, being in life, being who we are, that is neither indulgent nor ascetic. It's neither aggressive nor passive, but it is openly receptive and wisely responsive to the way things are. It was interesting that the Buddha in the midst or in the at the height, or I should say at the trough, at the bottom of, of his ascetic practice where he was just experiencing the most excruciating pain possible to experience. He, he acknowledged that it was the worst pain 
that anyone could ever experience in a human body, that it was not possible to experience more pain than that. And lucky for us, he said, this is not the way. <laughs> Phew, okay, off that hook, okay. But in that time, he had a memory come to mind. And it was the memory when he was, of when he was a young boy, and he was attending a ritual where his father, the king, was ritually plowing the, the field for, you know, to, to, to bring about an abundant uh, harvest. And the prince was a young boy. I don't remember what his age was, but he was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree. And he was kind of relaxed and kind of hanging out there, checking things out. And he spontaneously entered an exalted state of mind. He became absorbed in the mind's tranquility with alertness. And he remembered that, and he remembered how peaceful that state was, how clean it was, how pure it was. And he thought, well, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's got a clue, or maybe that's the way to finding this balance of mind in all situations. But when he remembered that time, he also remembered how pleasant it was. And for a while, initially, he was resistant or suspicious of that experience because it was not painful, that it was pleasant. But when he looked further, he realized that it was not just a sensual indulgence that was leading to kind of attachment and just kind of getting sunk in pleasure, but it was a mental equilibrium that had that quality of a very refined happiness. So for each one of us, it is to find that way of being in the present moment that is midway between indulging and denying. Or as our daughter who dropped us off at the shopping mall once said, now mom, Kamala, when you go in the mall, you focus. And dad, you float. (laughs) And for each one of us, it's finding a way to be in the present moment where we find that balance between focusing and floating, where we're present in a kind of an easeful but present way. So the Buddha taught that there are four right efforts to be cultivated in practice. So I want to speak about them tonight, but let me just mention that the four are, the first is to avoid unwholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen. That means when you go home from this retreat and you see all the Christmas catalogs that have come in the mail, you have not yet looked through them 
aroused all that desire for them. And so to avoid that desire, you just throw them away. That's no avoiding unwholesome states of mind before they arise. Hmm? The second is, well, if you do happen to look through the catalog and unwholesome states of mind do arise to overcome them. (laughs) And that doesn't mean you have to buy everything that you want. And the third is to develop wholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen. And the fourth is to bring to fruition or to support or to nourish, maintain wholesome states of mind that have already arisen. Now those sound like a lot of tongue twisters in there, but let me explain. The Buddha talked about making effort and a right effort in terms of wholesome and unwholesome. So we need to know, well, what is he referring to when he talks about wholesome and unwholesome states of mind? Unwholesome state of mind is a state of mind that causes pain, suffering, unhappiness to you or another. Anger, jealousy, fear, resentment, stress, agitation, restlessness, any any of those states of mind that cause you to be unhappy, pained, struggling or when acted on, cause others to feel pain, stress, unhappy. And wholesome, on the other hand, means those states of mind which do not cause pain, but tend more towards happiness, tranquility, peace, understanding, love, openness, connection, compassion. We know that what is going on in the mind directly and immediately conditions how we speak, how we act, how we think. But so too, what we're doing conditions the mind. The first right effort is to avoid those situations people, places, behaviors that are likely to arouse unwholesome states of mind. It's not that the something wrong with that person or that place, but that if you know that you're unable to maintain a wholesome state of mind there or with them or engaging that behavior, The Buddha is saying it is right effort to avoid that. And we avoid it out of understanding and wisdom, not out of aversion. Wisdom is the anticipation of consequences. If you know you go someplace or you go with someone and you just get into, you know, know, it doesn't bring out the best in you, avoid it. And that's really what the Buddha is pointing to recognizing what doesn't bring out the best in you, or what brings out the worst in you, and as much as possible, minimizing that contact. Being here on retreat, 
is in large part that kind of practice. We, we physically seclude ourselves from a lot of difficult, challenging, unwholesome news, people, activities. We just, we just don't have that opportunity. Although, as you know, there are people here that, you know, and at times they, you know, you can still be bothered by them. But on the whole, this is a pretty, pretty safe place for the mind. You know, we're not, we're not threatened. We're not, it's, not a fearful, it's not a fearful place. There's not a lot of fearful activities. There's not a lot of stimulation and distraction. Although we'll make a distraction out of anything. But just in being here is right effort. Avoiding a lot. I was listening to, uh, I think, Terry Gross on NPR. Now it's a couple years ago. And she was talking to a poet whose poetry and some of her poems were, were very popular with therapists, she was saying. And particularly one poem was used a lot for clients with depression. And she read a section of it, and one line jumped out at me. It was really good. She said, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. Well, what that means is, you know, there's some, there's some unwholesomeness that comes up in the mind. Don't go there without your mindfulness. When you go rummaging around in your mind, you're just kind of opening up and taking a look, be sure you take your mindfulness with you so that you will not be seduced, you know, be overtaken, you know, be overwhelmed by thugs in the neighborhood or other unwholesome conditions. Sometimes we think that, well, this practice is to learn how to be open to everything and, and why should we avoid, intentionally avoid anything? Why should we go around rather than through the dangerous neighborhood? Well, it's really out of compassion for yourself. If you see that to keep yourself or to prevent you know, unwholesome states of mind, or pain, suffering, fear, agitation from arising, you can avoid something. That is being compassionate to yourself. And while practice often does expose a lot of dukkha and pain and difficulty and challenge, practice is a compassionate activity because we're learning how to recognize, how to change our relationship, how to deal with the suffering in our lives, the causes of suffering in our, in our lives. You know, we, in the beginning of the retreat, encourage you to, in the instructions, use a primary object. And for many of you, it's the breath or the movement of the legs and walking. And for others of you, it's hearing or sweeping the body or something like that. And we, we encourage you for a number of days and, and throughout the retreat, we encourage you to return to the primary object. You know, why do we keep saying, you know, check in with the present moment, that which is familiar, the posture, the breath, whatever. 
why do we give you so much encouragement to do that? Well, if we're not paying careful attention, habits of mind run wild, as you've noticed. Even when we are paying careful attention, it runs pretty wild. But having a chosen object helps to avoid this kind of background unwholesomeness that runs through the, that can run through the mind. But all of this effort to be aware of the breath is just a technique. It's just a technique for sharpening the mind. You know, it's like if you had a, a sharpening stone and a dull knife and you needed to sharpen the knife. You, you, you put some oil or some water on the stone, you hold the knife at a certain angle, and you, you, know, you, you drag it across the stone at a certain pressure, a certain speed, a certain angle, and if you get it right, after a while, the blade becomes sharp. But it takes some practice to know what's the right angle, what's the right speed, what's the right pressure, so that you actually sharpen the blade and not just make it duller. But if you learn the technique, you can get pretty good at just sharpening that blade. You know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, sharp. The purpose of sharpening the blade, or knowing how to sharpen the blade, isn't so that you can just wear the blade down to nothing. Just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until the blade's gone. The purpose is to use the sharp blade to cut cleanly whatever it is you want to cut. Well, the purpose of observing the breath, back and forth, connecting, sustaining with the right effort, the right intention, the right attention, is not just to watch the breath. You know, that's just been going on for a lifetime. But it's to sharpen your attention, to cut through delusion. We live in the world of illusion. We live in the world of concepts, self-images, false relationship. We live just under this massive conceptual overlay of what's really going on. To see through the delusions that we live with, you need a very sharp attention. That's why we sharpen it on the breath. The breath itself, yeah, we need it, but that's not the goal. We don't want to be, become just a, a, a perfectionist or a good technician of observing the breath. There's no wisdom in that. It's how we use that sharp, clear, precise attention to cut through illusion. That's where we develop the wisdom, the clarity, the understanding. So when your attention notices something other than the breath, that is not bad practice. Your mind is off the breath, your attention is off the breath, you're noticing all kinds of other things, the wandering mind, pain in the body, sounds in the room, anger, frustration, disappointment, struggling thoughts, memories, emotions, great, good. Now you're seeing the way it really is. Don't hurry back to the breath. There's nothing there for you. Your attention is doing what it's supposed to do. See the way it truly is. In the body, in the mind, in the environment. 
learn to recognize what your attention is attending to. That's reality. We don't need to struggle to get back to the breath. When I first started practicing with Upandita in 84, he came here to do a three-month retreat, and I'd, I'd only been practicing uh, 10 years, so I was a, a total novice at uh, mindfulness. And he heard my name was Steve Armstrong. Well, he got a kick out of that. He knew a little bit of English. He got a real kick out of that. So every time, and I had to go see him every day for three months, I would walk in, and he'd look at me and say, Mindstrong. Mm, Steve Mindstrong. Is your mind strong today? <laughs> and I would think, what the hell does he mean by that? What do you mean, is your mind strong today? I, I, didn't know, I didn't know what he meant. Do you know what he meant? Is your mind strong today? Well, think of it this way. When your attention is continuous and you clearly see what is really going on, the chaotic activity of the mind, the incessant you know, habitual defilements that you were just accustomed to, the pain in the body. It takes a very strong mind to see and be with those experiences, to acknowledge them. Oh, th- this is the way it is. This is excruciating. This is painful. This is oppressive. This is... This is not okay. This is, this is hard. Strong mind. It takes a strong mind. We live in so much denial, illusion, you know, to, uh, just trying to avoid first noble truth. When we first open to the way it is in the body, really, the way it is in the mind, really, It takes a strong mind not to get blown away, overwhelmed, depressed, you know, and and leave the retreat. So that's what he was asking. You know, how's your mind today? Is your mind strong today? Can you bear with what you're seeing? Can you bear with it? Can you endure it? So this first right effort is to avoid those unwholesome states of mind not yet arisen. The second right effort is to overcome those unwholesome mental states that have arisen. You know, they do. Somehow they sneak in and uh, they just appear spontaneously by themselves, deeply conditioned habits, and there they are. Boom. Okay, now we have to deal with them. Sometimes we get the idea that we're supposed to, that, it, that, it's, that it's wrong or it's bad practice, it's a mistake, we're not doing something right if we see these unwholesome states of mind. But, but that's, not, that's not a right understanding. These defilements of mind are deeply conditioned habits. They will arise. We would be we would use our energy and time more wisely to know they're coming, be prepared, 
and be willing to engage them, to recognize them and engage them, than to avoid them or judge yourself for them. We really should be thankful every time we see defilements in the mind. I know most of us are just the opposite. We're critical of our good mindfulness that recognizes them. But actually, we should be thankful that we recognize them because in recognizing them, we can begin to work with them. We can begin to understand how is this in the mind? What is this what does this anger do to the body? What does this anger do to my relationships with others? What does this anger do to my thoughts? What does fear do? What does depression do? What does desire do? Jealousy, envy, any of those states of mind that arise. Observing it so that we can see, we can learn about what it does, not be fooled by it. Not be fooled by the story that self-righteously justifies why I should be angry. That's there, don't worry. We've had plenty of history, plenty of practice doing that. But learning from our defilements, that's why we pay attention. Not in order to get rid of them, but to learn from them, to learn about them so that we recognize them and we're not caught, we're not jerked around by them. You know, there was a, a cartoon that came out, I think it was, it was many years ago now, but anyway, and I don't even know who it is, I guess it's Pogo, or one of those, walking through a dump, says, you know, we have met the enemy, and it is us. Sometimes when we're walking through the, you know, the minefield of our mind, and we meet the defilements, we think, that's the enemy, and it's me. Well, the defilements are the enemy. That's true. They, they are the forces that make you suffer. The Buddha said, you know, the, the mind is radiant and shining. And, and it is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. So, the enemy of your happiness is the defilements. But there are many ways to work with, to overcome to put aside enemies. And a warrior, spiritual warrior, is someone who learns how to do that. But a spiritual warrior is someone who develops strength, uses the right knowledge, the skills, has the capacity, uses the appropriate tools to protect, to defend, to defeat, to overcome the enemy, so that the realm, your heart, can be at ease, can be at peace. To be a warrior is not just to be a mercenary, a hired gun. It's not just to be destructive, but it's to use your wisdom, your understanding, apply the right tools to overcome the obstacle to your noble purpose. In this case, freedom, awakening, happiness. Warrior energy, the energy of stamina, is really the energy to feel the unpleasantness of the defilements, knowingly, 
and not take it personally. To feel the unpleasantness, the pain, the suffering of the defilements, knowingly, to be mindful of that and not take it personally. To understand that when you're observing any of the defilements, the unwholesome states that have already arisen, we're really observing to know, or observing the nature of defilement, the nature of desire, learning from it in order to not be seduced by it, not be taken over by it. That's not just, you know, in the course of it, of course, when we're not feeding the defilements by resisting or indulging, they wither. And ultimately, they fall away. They are defeated. Not because we keep pounding on them or we keep beating ourselves with them, but because we don't feed them. This is how a skillful spiritual warrior defeats the enemy. We don't feed them. Saito Utejaniya, a monk in Burma that I've been practicing with, says, most yogis make the mistake of expecting good experience. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to work with the defilements. I've been giving you some of, some of you who see me, I've been giving you this encouragement. Don't expect good experience, but be willing to recognize and work with the defilements. Notice them. Really make that your, 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 your aim, to recognize them as soon as they arise. Good experiences, they're impermanent. <laughs> no, they'll come, fine. But it's the defilements that we want to really keep an eye out for. So the, one of the skills that a spiritual warrior uses is this firm determination. You know, it, I call it Nancy Reagan practice. Yeah. Just say no. Yeah. Just say no. It comes to the mind, just say no. You know, anger wants to seduce you, desire wants to seduce you, you want to get entangled in some you know, emotional drama, just say no. Not the no out of aversion, again, but it's a no out of understanding that I don't need to go there. It's not personal to me. Now, we can become imbalanced in our application of this stamina to endure. When I went to Burma, the schedule in the monastery was sit an hour, walk an hour, 20 hours a day. I said, okay, sit an hour, walk an hour, 20 hours a day. You get a couple of short meals in there. And after I'd been there for a couple of weeks, I said, well, gee, if sitting an hour is good, sitting an hour and a half must be better. So I said, all right, I'll sit an hour and a half, walk a half hour. So an hour and a half, walk a half hour. Sometimes I'd walk an hour. After an hour and a half, I'd sit two hours. I said, two hours is good. Three hours is going to be better. So I'd sit three hours. You know, so I was, you know, just ratcheting up the length of time I was sitting. And of course, I was ratcheting up the pain exponentially. So I was going into Upandita every day, two o'clock, reporting on my sitting practice. And I was going into these elaborate descriptions of the exquisite details of extraordinary pain. More and more and more. And after a couple of weeks of that, Upandita said to me after one report, he says, you know why you have so much pain? I said, no, why? Like, what's the secret? <laughs> he said, you sit too long. 
Okay. Well, I got busted. You know, I thought stamina was the goal. Stamina is not the goal. You can learn to sit through pain. What are you learning? What are you learning about pain, the nature of pain in the body? What are you learning about your resistance, aversion to it? What are you learning about striving? It's the knowledge that will free you. It's not the endurance that frees you. So, the Buddha said, the man or woman, a man or woman may conquer a million enemies or others in battle, but one who conquers him or herself is the greatest of conquerors, the greatest spiritual warrior. And it's, it's, it's conquering your own bad habits of mind. So that's the second right effort to overcome those unwholesome states of mind that unavoidably at times arise. Third right effort is to develop wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. They haven't yet arisen, so we make effort to bring them up. Bring them up. Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, great Tibetan teacher of the last century, said, a crystal takes on the color upon which it is placed whether it's white, yellow, red, or black. Likewise, the people you spend your time with will make a huge difference in the direction that your life takes. Spending your time with spiritual friends will fill you with love for all beings and help you to see how negative attachment and hatred really are. And being with such friends and following their example will naturally imbue you with their good qualities. Just coming here, being here to be among other like-minded people, those who practice, those who can guide, those who are serving, making it possible to be here, is moving your mind in the direction. It's making the right effort to arouse wholesome states of mind not yet arisen. And I'm sure you've seen, sometimes you just see you know, someone walking through the dining hall or I, used, I like to watch people coming into the hall to sit. It's so inspiring. You see mindfulness just oozing out of people, or kind of oozing into people. I don't know how it works, but you just see they're filled with mindfulness. It, it inspires me to be mindful, to be more careful, to be more attentive. Allowing or... or arousing states of mind, wholesome states of mind that are not yet arisen. Now, there are two elements to fulfilling this third right effort. And the first of them is to have faith, to have some understanding of the path of awakening and some understanding of the how to do it, so to speak, and then to have some, some level of confidence or faith that it actually works. And, you know, if, if you really don't think this practice works, it's hard to make the effort. But we don't know, none of us knows for sure, fully, that it works completely and for me. And so, you know, with a little bit of faith or confidence, we can practice. 
And with the results of that practice, we can feel more confident and we can continue to gradually increase the faith and confidence and gradually increase our understanding and our effort, our wholesome states of mind. I'd love to go to Burma. I spent five years there in the monastery. I've been back several times. I'm going again soon after this retreat ends. It just, there's just so many temples and so many monks and nuns walking around the street. And there's just, you know, Dharma talks are just broadcast over loudspeakers day and night. There's monks and nuns on alms round every morning up till noon. There's temples and pagodas. Everywhere you look, it's people practicing the Dharma. In some, in some ways, some very sincerely, some pretty casually. And there's every opportunity to see, to hear, to have the opportunity to practice the Dharma. It's, it's just a Dharma goldmine. It just reminds you over, everywhere you look. It's just, I mean, there's plenty of the other side too, the other neighborhood. But... It is so ever-present there. You can't avoid it. It's just putting yourself in a place where you will feel inspired, faithful. You'll have it aroused just by looking around. It makes the heart happy to be near uh, wholesome influence. So having some faith or confidence supports making this initial effort to arouse wholesome states of mind. But the second, I mean, just having faith or confidence is not enough. We actually have to have a personal aspiration to manifest it, to realize it for ourselves. We may have, you know, a lot of kind of intellectual understanding and intellectual confidence that the Buddha's way of seeing things, and maybe even the Buddha's practice, is right. But if we don't have a personal aspiration to see for ourselves, to, to fulfill that, to realize it, we won't make the effort. We won't arouse wholesome states of mind. We may have a, a head full of Dharma, head full of Buddhism, but our heart is empty of wholesome states. So there's, this, there, there's some uh, additional peace to having faith, and that is a personal aspiration to taste the fruits of the middle path, the fruits of awakening for oneself. Carlos Castaneda, great spiritual warrior of the last century, taught by Don Juan, about this way of making right effort. And he says, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now realized I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said, we either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. So it takes knowledge and aspiration to know the difference. 
what are we emphasizing? Are we emphasizing making ourselves miserable or making ourselves strong? We may have confidence. We may have an understanding of the, of the goal or the direction of the goal. And yet, for many of us, the end is not yet in sight. And we need to have some understanding of how to continue on a journey that we don't see the end. We know there's an end, but we don't see it for ourselves yet. You know the space shuttle that they send up from Florida and to go dock at the space station up there somewhere? You know, they have, they have this very, I'm sure, very elaborate, very complex, probably huge computer program of how to get there. It's the map, you know. So many, so many minutes at so much power in this direction and so many minutes and so much power at that direction. And after a couple of days, it, it, it takes off, and after a couple of days, it gets there. Well, I've heard that 98% of the time, the space shuttle is off course. But yet, it still gets there. And it gets there because the engineers back on Earth or wherever make innumerable mid-course corrections. Our practice is just like that. We aim for the goal, which, is, which can be pr being present, or it can be you know, fully realizing the Four Noble Truths, it can be Fourth Stage of Enlightenment, whatever, whatever you, whatever, however you imagine the goal, however you understand the goal. And we head off in that direction. 98% of the time, we're, we're not on target. You know, we're just, we're off in la-la land. But when we recognize that, make a mid-course correction, boom, we come back, you know, on track briefly before we drift off again. Can you imagine if 98% of the time you really felt like you just really weren't on, ta on track? It'd be hard to believe you'd, you'd reach the goal. But that's the way it is. If you recognize that you're off track and make a correction, it brings you back in line with your aspiration. Well, that's what this practice is about. That's what this right effort is about. Recognizing when you're a little bit off, a little bit, a little bit entangled, a little bit caught up, a little bit off track, and making it sometimes just a minute incremental adjustment, just being a little more patient, a little more enduring, a little less reactive, a little more attentive, connecting a little more clearly. That's all. Just making a slight mid-course correction brings the wholesomeness back in the mind. But we need to recognize that we're off course. We need to be practicing that second noble truth that recognizes when unwholesomeness has arisen in the mind so that we can make that mid-course correction developing those wholesome states, third right effort, to bring us back on track. Again, Saito Tejaniya, he says, it's not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. For this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. Right effort is 
continuity of attention. That's all. It's not struggle. It's not pushing. It's not being really aggro about it. It's just being persistent, moment after moment after moment. And it is this moment after moment after moment of planting the wholesome intention, the seed of intention to be mindful. We sit down and say, let me be mindful, or may I be mindful, or I'm going to make the effort to be mindful. And we, we try. You know, we, we plant that intentional seed. Please be mindful. Please be mindful. Please be mindful. And sometimes the seed lands on fertile soil, and wow, you know, we're mindful. Great. Sometimes it lands on bare rock or there's a drought and we're making the effort and we're not mindful. We're just, you know, it's, it's like we're out there. And sometimes, we, you know, you just can't understand it. Making the same effort, I'm sitting in the same posture at the same time, I had the same thing for breakfast, and my mind's a mess. <laughs> what? Why? 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 You know, well, just keep planting those seeds. Now, you know when, you know, after spacing out for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, maybe some of you are even still hanging out for 20 minutes in some la-la land fantasy. Inevitably, so far, you come back, right? Well, here you are, lost in thought, a train of thought, and suddenly you just come back. What happened? You didn't have an you didn't know you were lost. You didn't have the intention to be mindful, to come back. You didn't even know you were lost. You didn't even know you were sitting. You didn't know you were, you didn't know anything. You were just lost. And yet, poof, you're back. Well, we could say, you forgot the Dharma, but the Dharma didn't forget you. One of those seeds you planted last week, the week before, last year, last lifetime, sprouted, saved you from living in that fantasy. A moment of mindfulness seemed to appear spontaneously. It wasn't spontaneous. You planted that seed a long time ago. Our task is to keep planting seeds. We don't get to harvest the fruit, all of the fruit, right yet. The fruit will come later. We get to plant the seeds. That's his third right effort. Generating. Wholesome intention, wholesome states of mind, trying to arouse wholesome states of mind that have not yet arisen, planting seeds. The fourth right effort is to nourish and to bring to fruition the wholesome mental states that have already arisen. This is maybe the most subtle of the four right efforts. We've been making so much effort to you know, avoid the hindrances, deal with the hindrances, arouse wholesome states of mind, that when the mind actually becomes calm, aware, open, confident, energetic, we keep pushing, we keep, we keep struggling to, to, to make it more so. And if we don't recognize that, well, wait a minute, mindfulness is already happening. You know, the mind is already wholesome, or it's the mind is already not unwholesome. Okay. We don't have to keep pushing. 
You don't have to go back to the breath. You don't have to kind of keep <laughs> trying to have making more effort. At that point, we need to make an adjustment. We need to recognize these wholesome states of mind because, as Saito Utejaniya says, it is the recognition of wholesome states of mind that supports them. If we don't recognize them, they'll, they'll just kind of pass away. If we recognize them, it's in that recognition that we nourish them so that they come again, or that they linger, that they last for a while. When you're in a positive frame of mind, he says, it's important to recognize it. Recognition strengthens wholesome states of mind. So get your catalog of wholesome states of mind. I put the list up on the board. Tranquility, confidence, you know, equanimity, mindfulness, energy. Recognize when those states of mind are present because they're wholesome states of mind or wholesome qualities within a state of mind. If you're expecting neon lights, bright signs announcing that you've arrived at mindfulness, you'll be disappointed. It isn't like that. It's much subtler. The mind free of confusion, the mind free of struggle, the mind free of desire and aversion is calm. It's aware. It's balanced. If we're looking for a challenge, we may not recognize how easeful it can be. And so we need to make that adjustment. We need to expect wholesome states of mind. Keep an eye out for them, just as you'd keep an eye out for the defilements. But keep an eye out for those wholesome states of mind so that you can recognize them and support them. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we need to recognize, we need to know what the wholesome states of mind are so that we can begin to recognize them. And then we have to be very, I was going to say gentle, but that's not the right word. We need to be very precise. Precise in our application of effort. Just while you're sitting here, take and put your hands together like this. Can you feel one hand touching the other? Yeah. You can, just nod your head if you can. If you can't, please try again. <laughs> okay. You can feel, you can feel your hands touching each other. Why? Why can you feel your hands touching each other? Because you direct your attention precisely to the spot where your two hands touch. Did it take a lot of energy? Did you have to struggle? Did you have to furrow your brow, grit your teeth, push your tongue to the top of the mouth, and, and hunch your shoulders to feel that? And to know that you were feeling that? You did not. All it took was careful, precise attention. That's the fourth right effort. Precise attention that recognizes wholesome states of mind. If you're making more intentional effort than that, 
you may miss it. You may miss them. And so we need to let the intention to keep pushing also become more subtle so that we can recognize these wholesome states of mind. So these are the four right efforts. It's not all about struggle. It is about avoiding unwholesome states of mind not yet arisen. It's about overcoming through stamina sometimes the wholesome state, unwholesome states that do happen to arise. It's about having the faith and the aspiration to arouse wholesome states not yet arisen. And it's about the precise subtlety of recognizing the wholesome states and supporting them once they have arisen. Jamyong Control said of effort in practice, butter can be made by churning milk because the fat is already present in the milk. No one has ever made butter by churning water. A gold digger looks for gold in rocks, not in wood. In just the same way, striving to attain Buddhahood or awakening makes sense because Buddha nature is inherent in all sentient beings. Were it not for that potential, any such effort would be a waste of time. The potential to awaken is within you, within the mind. Any effort you make to, to, to realize that is, is right effort. So let's sit for a moment, let the words settle down. No one succeeds without effort, Ramana Maharshi said. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.